This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. I apologize, Wade, if I'm a little bit scattered today. I've just returned from wandering through the wilderness. I wish it was a literal wilderness. It's just a metaphorical one, but sometimes that's just as good. You know, Kevin, I have a couple of questions. Were you a part of a wagon train or were you just in search of a hot spring? Uh, Well, I was actually just spending the time in my apartment the same as I have been for the last few weeks. But, you know, doing it mentally, sometimes that's just as good. Listeners, we have a great episode planned for you today. We're going to be digging into the films of Kelly Reichert. Yes, that's right. We're continuing our 2020 or tour series with our ranking of her films on this episode, episode 245 of Seeing and Believing. Yes, we're here on episode 245 of Seeing and Believing, continuing our series on some modern-day directors who have some new films coming out in 2020. Wade, I had a good time talking about Christopher Nolan with you on the last episode. I think we really kicked it off with a bang. Or maybe I should say that we kicked it (laughs) off with a bwom. I knew you were going to say that long before that sound ever left your mouth. I I knew it. Uh, No, I had a lot of fun, and it seemed like our listeners really took to the episode, which I guess it goes to show how popular Christopher Nolan is. And here's hoping that in the next couple of months we can review his new film, Tenet. I... I'm just very excited about that movie. So we'll see how it goes. Yes, that makes... That makes two of us. I'm really looking forward to Tenet as well. We are going to be sharing some of that listener feedback here at the end of the episode, so stay tuned for that, as well as a discussion of a new release, Wade, that you had a chance to catch up with recently. But for now, uh, we'll uh, go ahead and jump into our discussion of a director who, at least for, for mainstream audiences, maybe needs a little bit more introduction than a blockbuster giant like Christopher Nolan. Wade, one of the reasons I'm looking forward to the discussion that we've got coming up is because we'll be giving some airtime to a director who, like I said, gets less mainstream attention, but is definitely one of the more exciting talents in indie filmmaking today. And that, of course, is the great Kelly Reichert. Reichert's body of work is comparatively small, not counting this year's First Cow, which I'm looking forward to catching up with at some point soon. Reichert has six feature-length films to her name. She also has directed a handful of short films, which are difficult if not impossible to find, but which form an important part of her sensibility. The majority of Reichert's films, in fact, are adaptations of short stories, many of them written by her screenwriting partner Jonathan Raymond, whom we were lucky enough to interview on the show some time back. Reichert's films often have this sketchbook quality to them, not in the sense that they're hastily or unevenly assembled, but at least to me, in the sense that they have an unpremeditated feel to them. Watching her films, we see characters struggling to come to terms with perils, sorrows, and undercurrents in themselves and the world around them that are difficult to pin down and articulate, both for the characters themselves and for us sitting in the audience. Wade, I said that I was really looking forward to going over our ranking of the six films that we're going to be talking about today, partly because she doesn't get enough attention in a lot of film nerd circles, but also because this is maybe the first time, or in fact, it actually is the first time in seeing and believing history that you and I ended up with identical rankings (laughs) for the films in our list. It's really weird because we didn't share that until, I don't know, 10 minutes before we hopped on to record our podcast. And 
I just forgot to send you my list and you sent me mine and I was like, oh no. But, <laughs> I, you know, to be honest, I think it's a really good ranking. So kudos to you, Kevin. No, k- kudos to both of us. And we'll just call this uh, the official seeing yeah. and believing ranking of of Kelly Reichert's film. So, you know, that way, you know, we, we stand united and uh, kind of enshrine that in the show's history. So uh, with that, I guess let's let's get to it. Um, at my number six, or I guess at our number six, we have her debut feature, River of Grass. This is a 1994 film that has a lot in common with Terrence Malick's Badlands. It's about a young couple who are thrown together almost by circumstance and embark on a crime spree that doesn't quite begin or end the way they expect it to, but which has this contemplative feel to it all throughout. Um, I have this at my number six, and I'm curious to get your thoughts about it, Wade, to, to see what your thinking was in ranking it there. But to me, at least, River of Grass is understandably a little bit rough around the edges. It was her first feature film. And for for me, it just, it left me a little bit cold. There's a lot to be intrigued by. There are glimpses of potential, but there are, there, there's enough roughness around there that I guess it, it couldn't really compete with the other five films that are above it, at least for me. Yeah, you know, this is a film that was released in 1994. It was just remastered. And so it's widely available now. But it would be another 12 years before Riker would make a feature, another feature film. She did make some smaller movies. And it's fascinating to observe the jump from River of Grass, 94, and Old Joy, 2006. So we'll talk about Old Joy, of course, later. This is kind of a strange movie for me. I, I didn't really enjoy it, Kevin. At the start of the film, it it feels too quick for Reichard. The dialogue almost ends up being Linklater-esque, but not with the quality uh, of wordsmithing that we see in a Linklater movie. What does intrigue me about River of Grass is some of the ideas that Reichert would come back and revisit later in her filmography. And one of those in particular is uh, the, the journey that her characters usually take. And when we see a typical road movie, we usually get characters going from point A to point B. Uh, Reichert, though, in many of her films, lets us observe these characters in the middle of their journey and we don't actually see them get to point b if they even do get there and that's what happens with the characters in these films uh this film they are they're stuck they believe they've committed this crime they want to get out of the city and they just can't do it and one of the characters says it's funny how a person can leave all that she has behind and still end up in the same place. And as I'm thinking through Reichard's filmography, I'm thinking about the burden of everyday life. And that's a reoccurring theme. The troubles that many characters experience might not be huge for some people. In some instances it is. In Meek's Cutoff, it's life-threatening. But for others, it's a journey through the changes that occur in life. And so we get that with the main character here in this film. And so there are a number of things to appreciate about this Bonnie and Clyde type story, even if it doesn't necessarily work like it should. Yeah, I think a lot of the parts of this film that don't work are just can probably be chalked up to. It's a first film. You don't necessarily expect somebody to be a virtuoso director right out of the gate. So that's that's certainly understandable. But I agree with you that it's really interesting to view this film in the context of the work that was to come after it. Because Reichert is a director, I guess, to me, that just she seems very interested in people who are 
are adrift or directionless or lost and kind of are, are casting about for some sort of compass or lodestar or or anchor, I guess, to really kind of show them, show, point them in the direction that they should go. And that's something that the character, the two main characters uh, in this film who kind of run into each other at a bar and perpetrate a crime and kind of go on the lam, but they don't, they, they go, they, I say go on the lam, but they don't really go anywhere. They're kind of, like you said, stuck. And the whole reason for them getting involved in this whole uh, episode to begin with was they just didn't really know what to do with themselves. And I feel like that's a predicament that a lot of Riker characters really find themselves in. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting, too, a reference to Catholicism in this film. And that reference seems to suggest that the faith can restrict us in a way. It can cloud us in. Uh, It can cloud our judgment in some senses. And it's fascinating to compare that with the references to faith in Meek's cutoff that we'll talk about later. There are also some images in River of Grass where we see uh, a hand uh, and a bullet hole through an individual's wrist. So there are a lot of kind of ideas going on. I I think ultimately due to some of the narration and some of the ideas, it's probably too heavy-handed for a Rikerd film, and we see that sort of change across her filmography. But it's just it's just kind of fascinating. And the same thing with Christopher Nolan's following. To watch someone's first film and see uh, see that come across the screen, knowing where their movies do go, and uh, seeing the seeds of that. So it's 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 kind of fun, and and I think the same thing here. Yeah, it it was fun to finally catch up with this film having seen uh, all of her other ones previous and kind of see where she she started out and where she ended up going. Because when, when we get to our, our number five film, I think this is kind of, this is not the film that followed uh, River of Grass, but it's, it's a film that in a lot of ways really seems situated in a very Reichert kind of context. When I think of Reichert, I think of the Pacific Northwest or the North, you know, like Montana, uh, Oregon, Washington, kind of that whole region of the United States. River of Grass is in Florida. The, you know, you can't get farther away from the Pacific Northwest than that state. But with this next film, we're going to definitely be in a much more archetypally Reichert setting. And we, uh, you and I both selected her 2013 film Night Moves as our number five for her body of work. This is a maybe a, a, one of her lesser known ones too. Um, it's got some big names in it. It's got stars Jesse Eisenberg, Dakota Fanning, and the great Peter Sarsgaard as some radical environmentalists who really want to make a statement by. Uh, sabotaging a dam that's being built locally and they uh, come together to see this through but you get the sense that some of their group are a little bit more gung-ho about this act of essentially domestic terrorism than other people in that group are so this is a film that is kind of another outlier not just not in terms of the setting for me, but in terms of this is almost a, a conventional thriller, which is not, again, not really a, a place that I tend to think of Reichert going that often, but she really does kind of go with um, more conventional thriller dynamics here, which I thought was, was interesting to watch. How much do you have? Mm, a thousand pounds, give or take. And how much do we need? 500 pounds would be nice. 500 pounds. Look, we can go with what we have. I mean, it's probably all right. God knows that dam wants to come down. There's a serious tonnage of water just pushing up against her walls. Everything in the world is telling her to give up and let go. But still, I mean, we should just help her all we can. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned it's it's lesser known. I feel like Night Moves 
outside the cinephile world is her best known movie because of the star power and because of the more traditional plot. And when I watched this film, Kevin, I I liked it. I, I thought it was fine, but my enthusiasm has, has kind of waned since then and since seeing more of her work. This is her plottiest film to date. I think it is thought-provoking. We're thinking about the environment. We're thinking about um, morality as it pertains to protecting the environment. But I also think this film is, is straightforward for a Reichard project. And I'm not sure that that's a compliment. I think that Reichard operates at 100% when she's giving us ideas and she's allowing us to interpret those ideas. And that, that seems to be her M.O. She seems to be a filmmaker who wants to present a story and then give us viable interpretations and not necessarily say that we're right or wrong. It's in our hands now. And I don't really see that in Night Moves. I I see more of a third act. I, I see um, more of uh, tension. Uh, I see more uh, of a thriller atmosphere uh, than I do in some of her other works. I will say this, though. There's a really incredible final shot here, and it's one of the best, I think, in Reichert's filmography. The very end of the movie, we see a character. This character is in a sporting goods store, and we look up at a mirror that's in the store, and it's one of those mirrors that they put up at corners so you can kind of see around the corner. And we see this this mannequin in the store, and it's just a great image of nature's commercialization. Uh, it's it's really great, and I wish I would have seen more of that uh, in Night Moves. I I agree with you that this is an interesting film, maybe not a wholly successful one, and it, it's it's odd. I I was trying to sort out what I thought about this film afterwards, because I actually think that Reichert does a pretty good job with the thriller elements. The, um, the, the plottiness that you mentioned, I think isn't necessarily a problem. I think it works pretty well as the story that it's, it's trying to be. I think maybe it, it's, uh, maybe a casting thing. I don't know that I fully buy, uh, Eisenberg and, and Fanning in, in this film. They just, they seem miscast a little bit to me as sort of these these really <laughs> i when i think of jesse eisenberg i don't really think of hardcore environmentalist he he just seems to be playing against type in a way that is maybe not helpful for the film as a whole which to me undercuts which is her way of working with actors to create really crisp vivid characters who don't aren't necessarily vivid in themselves, but the details that Riker chooses to draw out of them and that her actors choose to draw out of them make them so. In Night Moves, I don't really get that ingredient, which makes it the the odd situation where a director kind of working outside their their normal comfort zone actually is more successful with the outside the comfort zone elements of the film than they are with the elements that maybe fit more comfortably into their overall body of work. Yeah, and I, I think as you're talking about characters and you're talking about performances, um, this is a good segue to jump to our number four. And I'll kind of spoil it. Uh, it's Old Joy from 2006. So this is the next feature film that she made after River of Grass. And this is one of those stories. Two buddies go out to hang at a hot spring and they get lost and then they find the hot spring and they go home. This is the opposite of a very plotty movie. In fact, if you give someone a synopsis like I, I just gave all of you, they're like, oh, you know, that's it. We don't learn a ton about these characters, but yet we feel like we know these characters. We don't get a ton of plot, but that's really all that we need. And I think for the most part, Old Joy is successful, and it's the antidote to maybe something that we see in, in Night Moves. Yeah, I Old Joy is a really excellent movie, and it, it's telling that it's at number four in, in my ranking, 
And yet I just, I, I would put it above so many other films from, from other directors. I think Reichert's work is just so strong that the fact that Old Joy is down at number four really tells you a lot about her uh, strengths as a filmmaker. I actually rewatched this film uh, last night in preparation for the show and what liked it just was kind of almost blown away by how much I liked it. To me, this seems like the most overtly spiritual of Reichert's works. I'm thinking of the the conversation that Will Oldham's character has with Daniel London's character at the Hot Springs, where he talks about how he feels like the world is is broken. There's something broken in the world, and that there, he can't quite put his finger on it, but something's not right. He feels like he doesn't fit in, and he feels as if the friendship that exists between the two of them is slipping away, and he can't, he, he's trying to grasp after it. And that is a kind of spiritual longing that, I don't know, kind of almost took my breath away in the sense that it, it grows very organically out of these characters. It's not uh, an out-of-the-blue moment at all, and yet it just, it feels... It, it feels like there's an exclamation point on it, which paradoxically, this isn't a film that really feels like it has any exclamation points in it at all. It's just got this easy rhythm to it. I really like what Roger Ebert says about it, which is he says, watching this film, you increasingly get the sense that has the important thing happened yet? Have I already missed the important thing? Where is it? And you, you end the film knowing that it happened, but not quite being sure when and where it happened. And I think that that's a really good summation of how and why this film works for me. Yeah, I, I had a chance to read Ebert's review before the podcast, and it's it's fantastic. And I'll, I'll quote him when he talks about another movie from Reichert a little bit later on here. I also came across a quote from Adam Naiman, and he says this, As the title implies, Old Joy is a film in which the optimism of youth has weathered over time. And I think that's a great summary of this movie, and it goes along with what you're talking about, Kevin, as you are mentioning the way that life changes. And Reichert has a, a great eye for nature and nature photography. And I feel like the, the photography here and just the setting of this movie really encourages us to kind of pause and stop and appreciate nature. And there's something about that when we do that. It does bring with it the idea that our lives are going and maybe we maybe we didn't realize it. Maybe we just needed to stop to realize how much our life has changed, to contemplate our life. I think there's also something about seeing the green leafiness of this environment, the the youthfulness of the environment, and then comparing it to these two individuals who feel like their relationship has drifted apart. And one of the one of the men is gearing up for a child. And we have this it, it it's it's simultaneously a story about getting older, but then also a story about how new life begins, because that's kind of always in the background and how we adjust to that. And too, I was thinking about this, Kevin. Whenever I think about Reichard, I think of great female characters. And it's just fascinating how she has crafted this, I think, a very good film about male relationships and even the changes that those relationships experience over time. And I think... This shows her range in a way that maybe Night Moves doesn't. She's still operating in her sweet spot, but she has this ability to take these characters and really open them up to the world. And like I said, in a way that's um, refreshing and also in a way that's hard to pin down. You, you mentioned, you know, I don't know when it happened, but it happens. And I think sometimes, you know, I watch a Reichert film and I watch this film and I say, I'm not for sure exactly what this movie's about. But I know it's about something, and I know that it it connects to me emotionally, and maybe that's the best way to describe it. Yeah, that's that's a, a good way to to end the discussion 
of of that film moving on to our number three we have certain women so we go from a movie that's really exploring masculinity and the the relationship between men to a film that's a lot more about the different shapes that femininity can take and the relationships that form uh between women and men between women and each other and this is an interesting film because unlike the other five films on this list, it um, consists of a series of vignettes. Like this is not a single narrative from beginning to end. It's a collection of essentially short stories. And over the course of the film, we spend time with uh, different protagonists and sort of observe them go through a story and then move on to the next one. And there's an interesting, almost kaleidoscopic effect that Riker, at least for me, achieves with that. The sense that when she's portraying these these women, and in, in fact titles the entire film Certain Women, we kind of go into it thinking, okay, we're going to see kind of a statement of on femininity, on womanhood, on what it means to to be a woman in the modern world. And yet Riker doesn't just sort of give us one character who kind of she explores those themes through a single person. She explores those themes through a collection of people. And each one of these vignettes, I think, could stand on its own as a fascinating feature film. The fact that they're all congregated into a single feature film just makes it so much more rich. Yeah, well, and if I'm talking about uh, road movies or um, movies about journeys, I think this fits into that 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 universe because each of these women they're blazing their own trail they're on this journey and their stories are all different but there's this universal quality to their struggles their everyday struggles and i i think that gets to the the quiet emotional impact of a film like this and some of reichert's best work guthrie Guthrie. Guthrie. Come say hi to Albert. No. No way, Dad. Every time we come out here, you guys swear it won't take all weekend, but it always... Don't know why you indulge her. I was just talking to her. We did tell her that we weren't going to keep her out here all day. God, she really can't help it. What? Making me the bad guy. Always. Whatever. These are the struggles that these individuals face day in and day out. And they come with their fair share of challenges. So we have stories that relate to marriage, parenting, occupation, education. It's not a big story about, uh, say, um, someone facing this incredible hardship and this inspirational movie where they have to overcome that. But these challenges, while they may seem small, are big in the minds of the characters, and they're large in our minds because they are very personal. And I think the cast here is great, Kevin. I think Lily Gladstone is amazing, Michelle Williams, Christian, Kristen Stewart, Laura Dern. Uh, the emotions are never forced on us. Now, I will note this. We did review this on episode 82, and I think my my one quibble with this film is that, for me, the stories alone were great. Uh, I, I think Michelle Williams probably has the weakest of the stories. They just didn't come together in a way that I that I wish they would. And I don't I don't know the answer to that. I, I definitely don't want this film where they all kind of show up and we realize, oh, they're all sisters and they meet together. N nothing like that. But but it just didn't come together the way I thought they would. But individually, I, I thought they were amazing, and they do also represent this universal struggle. So there is that. I you know I think for me the the lack of inter interconnectedness or readily apparent interconnectedness anyway uh, was really refreshing, especially in the age of extended cinematic universes and, you know, like everybody all kind of exists in the same world and interact with each other and are in each other's movies. I kind of enjoyed a step back from that kind of ethos where the 
connections among people needed to be made plain in order for us to appreciate them. I think that Reichert's choice to not really force any connections, but simply to let these stories tell themselves and to let the audience infer connections or to just simply enjoy uh, experiencing multiple stories within a single film unit, I think is to the film's credit. And I, th- I, I would call it an asset. But um, I am curious to know, uh, you, you mentioned that you were less of a fan of Michelle Williams' segment. I am curious to close out this discussion of this film which of the uh, segments you thought felt was the strongest which one was your favorite yeah i think the strongest is probably the segment with kristen stewart and lily gladstone i i think it i think it's the longest if i remember correctly and th- there's just something there about um, it, it's a, it's about the trail that these characters are taking. I guess I go back to what I said earlier, and the journeys, the, the personal journey that each of them is is taking, and the relationships that they make along the way, and the difficulty. And part of that is just a long drive, right? A three four hour drive, um, but it's it, it's a challenge that they need to face in order to chart their own path in the world. Um, what about you, Kevin? What was your favorite segment? Yeah, well, that that long I, I agree with you that the Stuart Gladstone segment is is probably the film's strongest, and I like that you brought up the the distance of driving that is sort of this obstacle in their their burgeoning relationship. That simply having to drive three or four hours just to to see somebody or just to keep a a friendship going or to let somebody know you care about them is such an obstacle, and that again is really rooted in the American region that Riker really seems to kind of have taken as her own. That's something that if you lived in in New England, maybe isn't necessarily as big of an issue than driving for four hours or just a flat expanse of, of nothing. I really like that. And it also gives rise to what I think is one of the most powerful uh, sequences in Reichert's entire filmography, which is Lily Gladstone on one of these lengthy drives kind of begins to nod off to sleep after having experienced a disappointment. And Reichert shoots her car as it sort of drifts off the road and into the fields by the side of the road and just kind of slowly just grinds, crashes to a halt. It's just, there's, you really feel the the um the disappointment and the the sadness in that lonely shot uh, on a yeah. lonely stretch of highway in in Montana it's it's really great yeah no that's great well uh moving on to our number 2 we have her 2007 film Wendy and Lucy and this is another film that stars Michelle Williams who I don't know you you could make the argument is is Reichert's uh muse at least in the acting sphere um, she's in so many of Reichert's films. In this one, she plays a young woman named Wendy. She's kind of itinerant. She has her only companion who's faithful to her and with her always, which is her dog, Lucy. And the film charts their course as they essentially try to take care of each other. And especially Wendy struggles with the fact that she's kind of at the end of her rope. And she has to make some really hard choices in order to continue moving on with her life. And I, for me, this is probably just the most nakedly emotional of Reichert's films. It's a heartbreaker. And uh, I think that alone is maybe accounts for why it's at its number two spot here for me, that it's 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 got the same kind of rhythms of a Reichert film, but the mutedness maybe that we associate with a lot of Reichert's work is still present here, but it's also doesn't mean that it doesn't pack a wallop when it wants to. And man, does this film ever pack a wallop? Oh, it's, it's such a sad story. And I, I think it also connects to one of Reichert's themes. At least I, I think it's a theme in her work. And that's where does the political and the everyday meet? And when I say political, I don't necessarily mean the ballot box, but where do our political decisions meet with the people who are affected by those decisions? And how does our economy, how does the makeup of our nation affect 
the lives of everyday citizens or people in the margins. And we see that in the character that Michelle Williams plays. And you mentioned this sort of muted nature of the film. And that uh, leads me to the quote uh, from Roger Ebert that I alluded to earlier. And he says this, her world is seen as the flat everyday world of shopping malls and storefronts, rail tracks, and not much traffic, skies that the weatherman calls overcast. You know those days when you walk around and the weather makes you feel in your stomach that something is not right? Cinematography can make you feel like that. And that is a great way to describe this movie. Uh, You just watch it and you realize there are things that are not right. And also to see the the natural beauty here versus the harshness of, of life, of nature. This world is a harsh place. Is there any release? Uh, are Reichert's films about yearning and about longing and about uh, escaping? And so if this too is a road movie, right, and we, we get this character who is on a journey to Alaska, and that's kind of this metaphor for just trying to go as far as you can, uh, what if the road isn't about adventure and independence, but what if it's about struggle and pain? What if it's not um, about the journey? But life is mostly a journey. Where, where do we arrive? Do we ever arrive? And I think there's this spiritual quality to this film. And we, once again, get it in many of our other works. But there's something just directly uh, on the ground emotional in, in Wendy and Lucy uh, when we think about those ideas. Great dog. What's her name? Uh, Lucy. Your sweetheart, Lucy. Where are you going? Going to Alaska. Woohoo! King Salmon! You going to work? Can't sleep here, ma'am. You can't sleep out here, it's not allowed. Okay. Fifty dollars. You can pay your fine now, or you can come back for a trial with the judge. I don't, I don't, I don't live here. I'm, I'm just passing through. If you get stopped in another state, you're just going to end up right back here. Something that Wendy and Lucy and our number one film kind of have in common is exploding this, the, the American myth of, of self-reliance. The fact that, you know, with just enough grit and enough pluck and enough hard work, you, you can just forge your own path through life. You don't really need anyone else as long as you just know what you want and go after it with everything you have. In Wendy and Lucy, we really see kind of the ways in which that American myth has failed this young woman. She she is kind of struck out on her own. She's, you know, trying to make her own way. She's a, a ashamed to really ask her her sister for help and there's a scene where she has this conversation with her with her much more rooted sister and trying to express to her what her needs are and that scene is such a struggle for her because she spent so much of her life kind of trying to do the whole you know lone wolf thing and is really running up against the cold hard reality that we really do need other people we can't do everything by ourselves and it can lead us to a lot of pain when we really do strike out on on that path and really try to to make it a reality so yeah it's a it's a really strong film i do have to correct myself it's a 2008 film not a 2007 film i guess i have this weird mental block where just every great movie came out in 2007 which sometimes works out but uh, in this case was was not right (laughs) right right um well, should we get to our number one? Uh, I, I, I guess yeah. people who know Reichert's work, they know what this film is. Um, but for people who don't, uh, this this is a really good one. Yeah. And I'm, I'm interested to to hear your thoughts on this because uh, last time we talked, you you mentioned that this film left you a little bit cold the, the first time you saw it. So I'm, I'm curious to know if you had a chance to rewatch it and if that changed your estimation of it at all. We're talking, of course, listeners of... Her 2011 film, Meek's Cutoff. This is a, a Western uh, about, it's essentially set on the Oregon Trail. 
uh, based on a true story, actually, of this wagon train that got lost on the way to Oregon. So uh, let's hear it, Wade. What, what do you like about Meek's Cutoff? Yeah, yeah. So this is the second time watching it. And um, you know, I, I did like it the first time, and I really appreciated talking to Jonathan Raymond and as we just kind of went through some of the interpretations for this film, and and I don't think he affirmed any of them, but he affirmed some of these ideas and these themes that are just kind of whirling around. You could take this story and look at it from a number of different vantage points. You could look at Meek's cutoff, and um, it could be this uh, metaphor for our involvement in Afghanistan and Iraq. It can be about... uh, Native American culture and what we've done to Native American culture. It can be a story about women and their role in society. It can be a straightforward story about characters who are just trying to make it to their own paradise or their own American dream. There are a lot of different ways that we can examine this movie. And I think those work pretty well. And it's fun to watch this film and kind of try out those different interpretations and you get to the universal quality of our wondering and being led by someone that we don't know if we can trust these warring factions between different groups of people trying to stake out their own place in this world and i just appreciate that and i appreciate to the the realism here you have a talk of of you know western realism this one really takes it to another level i love the academy ratio i really love in in this film uh the darkness when the sun goes down the film gets dark it gets very dark and i'm watching i watched this uh it was on it's streaming on hulu i watched this on my computer screen a bright screen and uh, it's still kind of difficult to discern everything in the picture. And I love the feeling that you get. You feel like you're walking around with these characters. And then the sound of just wagons uh, rolling across these prairies, the sound of people walking through grass. There are a lot of things to, to commend about this movie. Well, if it's riches you'll have to there's riches are plenty. You mark my words. <laughs> We'll follow land downhill. We need water. That much I know. That's what you think, that we're lost? I'd say that seems about the right word for it. We're not lost, we're just finding our way. I don't blame him for not knowing. I blame him for saying he did. This is only a bad dream soon. It's gonna be a story to tell. Oh, the sound design in this movie is just incredible. The 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 creaking of the wagon axles and, and the crunching as they, they go over this uneven ground. You know, it's not paved or anything, obviously. And just the sense that Riker gives you through those those choices that at any time one of these axles could break and they are all going to die. That is just the the tension inherent in that is just so overwhelming that and gives this film such such a power that I mean it, it's just a clear number one uh, in 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 my mind it's so good and I also like going back to what I said earlier about exploding American myths the way that Reichert uh, makes kind of a feminist western in the sense that the the kind of the man in charge Meek Stephen Meek played by a really great and almost unrecognizable Bruce Greenwood he's sort of the the leader of the group he claims to know. Uh, the path forward. He's kind of the visionary, and if you all just follow him, he'll he'll get you to safety. He'll get you where you need to go. And yet, in Reichert's telling, he's kind of a almost a charlatan, and the women know what's up. And yet, because of the society of the times, they're kind of obliged to stand aside by themselves while their husbands and Stephen Meek kind of decide whether they're going to live or die. And there's that again just carries such tension in it that it's just it's an unforgettable experience and it's a deliberately paced movie i mean this is not a a thrill ride in the sense that there's a lot of action but you are wholly invested throughout simply because of 
Reichert's filmmaking and because of the way that she and Jonathan Raymond have really shaped this story to serve very specific ends. I, I think it's really remarkable. And I mean, I guess there's a reason why I came within a hair's breadth of having it on my top 10 of the decade. Mm. It's that good. Yeah, I like it a lot. You know, I mentioned on the Christ and Pop Culture members only Facebook page when we were talking about these directors and trying to figure out who we were going to talk about before we decided to talk about all four of the directors that we're going to be discussing <laughs> over this auteur series. And I mentioned that I, I really appreciate Reichert's work, but none of her films have really blown me away. And I think on this watch, this is the film that comes closest to doing that. Uh, and maybe, too, it's the fact that I've just been watching more Westerns, but I really love the look here that we get with these characters and the intentionality here. There's this one scene where Michelle Williams, she comes across a Native American. She runs, she grabs a gun, she fires it. And then we just watch her reload this weapon. Uh, you know, this 1845 rifle, putting the gunpowder in and, and, the, and the bullet and all that. And it's just kind of this wonderful examination of this type of, of life. And we get these great scenes where the men are gathering together and they're essentially kind of deciding the fate of their group and the women are watching from afar in some scenes it's very difficult for us to even hear the men talking we we are we are listening like the women are listening other scenes where the women they're they're discussing with the men have already talked about but then we get this great relationship and i recently read josh larson's review of this film and he, he points out the relationship with michelle williams's character emily and her husband, played by Will Patton, he has a small role in Wendy and Lucy. Uh, he plays Solomon. And she stands by her husband in, in public, and he actually stands by her in public. Uh, but when they talk, they disagree with each other, and then they present this united front. And at one point, Emily, she, 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 she goes after. Uh, she goes after Meek. And... She points a gun at him and Meek goes and he looks at her husband and, you know, says something to the effect of, oh, you know, your wife's something else. And he just goes, yeah, she is. And I, I, I like the agency that these women are taking. And I like this really great relationship. Um, we see that things aren't right, but we also see that there are some individuals uh, and there's some relationships that surpass this this time period and then too kevin i i want to talk a little bit about the religious elements particularly christianity this uh, native american comes into the fold and he prays um to uh i guess the gods that he follows or, or mother nature he prays to the moon and then you you definitely have individuals who are singing christian hymns the settlers um at one point they're they're quoting bible verses and uh one character is is quoting from Genesis 3, and he says, To dust thy shall return. And we get the sense that they're compelled forward, and maybe there's this optimism because of their faith. Where does that lead them exactly? And like most of Reichert's films, she doesn't say. We're kind of left to figure that out and to wrestle with that as we think about faith you know, in, in our own life. Yeah, I think there's... It's difficult to put your finger on this the spiritual elements in this film, but they're definitely there. I really the ending is something that I, I think about often. Just the the fact that it there it ends on this note of uncertainty and ambiguity, and yet it also seems to weirdly have this sense of resolution. And there's almost this this numinous supernatural feel to it like what what is going to happen to us next we don't know and yet we go forward anyway i think there's something there that is really engaging to think about and again one of the strengths of reichert's approach to filmmaking where she is content to rather than connect the dots she just presents action and conversation and ordinary characters on the screen and sort of lets the audience kind of decide what it means to us and, and what the import of all these things are. I, I think that it's a really strong way to 
end the film and meek's cutoff is a heck of a way to end a top <laughs> six list of of reichert's films yeah it's it's a good one. i mean and you get to, you get to the end of this movie and if you're thinking about survival uh is meek right if they follow meek will they survive maybe i mean he's he's racist he's violent but maybe his approach to their scenario will help them survive i don't know and i you know the film makes us contend well is it is life just about surviving or is there something more to it there's really a lot to consider here yeah for sure well listeners that is our official seeing and believing ranking of kelly reichert's films we'll uh, get back to you once we have a chance to see first count let you know where on the ranking it falls we're also curious to know what your own rankings are if you've been watching along with us and have your own thoughts on what the definitive ranking of kelly reichert's feature films are definitely let us know you can always uh, tweet us at cbelievepod on Twitter or email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. Some of you actually made use of our Twitter and email last week to let us know what you thought of Christopher Nolan. We're going to be reading some of your feedback here in just a minute. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting. A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. song is The Rain by Only August. You know what, Kevin? Over the past couple of years, we've talked about how much we appreciate our Patreon supporters. When you support us listeners via Patreon, you give us an opportunity to keep the podcast going. It's simple, it's easy, and there are a number of different donation levels. One of our favorites is the What Can You Buy for $5 level. You get a lot of perks, and Kevin, that begs the question... What could someone buy for five bucks? Five dollars would get you an automatic nectarine D peeler. Okay. Um, I, hmm. I I don't know, Wade, if you're if you're a huge like eater of of cuties or, or you know the, those those tangerines, nectarines. I don't even necessarily know what's the differences. The small oranges that you can get in the bags at the store. I just eat them like M and M's, wow. and it would just be a huge time save if. Some some other machine, robot, whatever, would just take the peels off for me just so I can increase the rate at which I shove those those into my face. Yeah. So no, that's a great idea. I would make use of it. I think that's good. And then you can buy attachments so that it will peel potatoes or apples. Uh, there's a lot of potential. You gotta start with the five bucks and then you can add on. But no, I, I think that's I think that's great. Listeners, 
you can hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast to support us via Patreon. We very much appreciate it. Kevin, we're going to talk about a new film that I saw recently here in a bit that I would recommend to our listeners. First, we want to read some feedback. And I, I'm i really pumped about the feedback because when we released that Christopher Nolan episode, it seemed uh, that a number of individuals were excited to talk about his work. And so we're going to read some of that to you. Uh, a couple of things to get started before we hop on over to Christopher Nolan, we did get a tweet from Andrew Bodenbach, who has supported the podcast for a good while, and he was responding to our South Korean movie marathon. He recently saw Mother. We were excited about that. And he moved on to film number two in that marathon, and that was The Housemaid from 1960. And he said, just watched this today, loved it. Thanks for selecting it. And we've talked about how excited we were to discover that film. And it's really <laughs> exciting to see other people discover it too. Man, what a hoot that movie was. I kind of <laughs> want to go back and, and, and re-watch it right now. It's just, what a what a find. I'm so glad that, that we had the chance to discover it as well. And yeah, really glad that Andrew enjoyed the discovery too. Yeah. And then we had a tweet, Kevin, from uh, Christy Olson. She also supports the podcast. And she responded to your take on Interstellar. Now, there were some agreements we had on Interstellar in terms of the film's quality. You liked it way less than I did because it was your least favorite Christopher Nolan movie. And she said, well, Kevin, we've had a good run but choosing Ad Astra over Interstellar. And then there's a, a gif, Kevin, and it's Matthew McConaughey in Interstellar, and he's saying, we are not prepared for this. <laughs> so, <laughs> now, my response was, he's wrong about Interstellar in general, but he may be onto something here because I think Ad Astra is better than Interstellar, uh, even though I still like Interstellar. And... Chrissy said, Ad Astra was a Malik knockoff, an interstellar wannabe. She says, yes, interstellar. Oh. She says, yes, interstellar is one of my favorite movies. So I, you kind of went for blood on interstellar. And so it's one of her favorite films. I totally understand that reaction, Kevin. Yeah, savage, savage. I guess I, I would have to respond to her Matthew McConaughey gif with uh, my own Matthew McConaughey gift, the one where he's watching the the tapes from home <laughs> and just crying all over himself. Yeah. That's 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 what I what I'm doing right now, Christy. I'm I'm so sorry. Please don't don't continue to be angry at us. Uh, I don't repent though, but you know, <laughs> I, I am sorry that we couldn't see eye to eye on this. Yeah. No, that's that's one way to say it. And then Kevin, uh, this is kind of fun. Um, Lindsay Dunn, uh, she tweeted us and on Twitter right now, people are listing five movies that they think are perfect. So she tagged the Sea Belief Pod uh, handle, and her movies were 2001 A Space Odyssey, Vertigo, La Lars and the Real Girl, Memento, so that relates to the Christopher Nolan Marathon, and Karate Kid. Um, I think some of those are some really good picks. If you had to choose some of your favorite movies, movies that you think are perfect, are there any that come to mind, Kevin? Well, it was it's an interesting question because I think there's actually a difference between favorite movie and perfect. That movie. that's true. That's because true. Because it's it's not synonymous for me at all, but there are some films that when I think about a perfect movie, I think of just like I can't think of a single thing that I could change about this to make it better there's nothing there's no rough edges there it's all just pristine and perfect uh i i definitely would have uh, uh charlie chaplin's city lights on there i think it's just flawless in every way fw murnau is sunrise for sure um citizen kane is maybe a bit of a basic choice but i mean it's it's true widely considered one of the greatest films of all time for a reason i think it's it's pretty flawless entertaining and also really thought-provoking uh i'm gonna put double indemnity on my list too i That's i just great. i endlessly entertaining so sharply written and directed and for my number five that i'm ugh, i it it's hard because filling up that number five spot means the exclusion of so many other films but i think 
Late Spring uh, by Yasujiro Ozu might be on there. Either that or Seven Samurai. Mm. Seven Samurai, actually, now that I think about it, I'm going to give that the, the fifth berth because, man, s- entertainment, action, romance, humor, Seven Samurai's got it all. I mean, it really has everything. That that was on the, the short list for me, Seven Samurai. Uh, I think Citizen Kane, of course. I think that Die Hard is a perfect movie because okay. it, it, it it's this gritty cop action movie and I, I think in terms of that genre, it's perfect. I, I don't think of anything I would I would change about that film. I really love Raiders of the Lost Ark and E. T. You know how I love Spielberg and I think I think those two movies are just kind of pitch perfect. Empire Strikes Back for me is kind of just like this perfect movie i wouldn't change anything about that it's a wonderful life uh possibly babette's feast uh might be another one maybe singing in the rain it's hard i'm gonna try to choose i'm gonna try to choose five and post it on twitter but there's just so many different choices yeah, those those are, I, I'm interested to see what you finally narrow it down to because uh, good picks all. Uh, we also heard got an email from Christopher McDougall. He wrote us also in response to our Christopher Nolan episode. He writes, "Dear Kevin and Wade, thank you so much for April seventeenth's podcast episode on Christopher Nolan, one of my favorite filmmakers." Listening to the episode really made me want to have a mini Nolan-thon this weekend. I plan to open the wrapping on my Interstellar Blu-ray and watch the movie for the first time, as well as dust off my prestige DVD and revisit my favorite movie about two obsessive characters who absolutely hate each other. Dunkirk will definitely get a rewatch. Despite my owning the Blu-ray, I wasn't as impressed by it as his other films, but hearing you both speak so highly of it makes me want to give it another chance. And I definitely will fire up Netflix so I can show Inception to my wife. I'm looking forward to the episode on Kelly Reichert, as I have not seen any of her films, and it will be a great primer. Thanks and cheers, Christopher McDougall. Thanks so much for the kind words, Christopher. We're really glad to... uh, Re, maybe rekindle some Christopher Nolan watching in your own life, and we're definitely curious to know uh, which Riker you managed to catch up with and uh, what you thought of him. Yeah, I'm excited about that. I got a text from Eric Johnson, who is a Patreon supporter, and he has not seen any of Riker's films, and he's gonna he's gonna go through them over the next week or two weeks and try to watch all of them and listen to the episode so i'm really excited to hear that kind of just this fresh perspective where you get to watch all of them at once Uh, so kevin before we leave uh we were thinking about movies and films and television shows that that we're watching that are new that people might enjoy and i had a chance to catch up with the uh gavin o'connor directed film the way back starring ben affleck and originally, Kevin, this was on our list to review, and it was the week that everything kind of shut down. And so we just, of course, couldn't get to the theater to watch it. It was released on VOD, and now it's actually available to rent. So you can rent it for, I think it's like five bucks, four bucks. And I appreciate a number of O'Connor's sports films. I really like his film Warrior. Uh, it's a, I think it's a really great story of a brotherhood. It's from 2011, and it stars, of course, Tom Hardy. I recently watched his film Miracle, uh, The Miracle on Ice from 2004, and it's pretty cliche, but it's fairly decent for a sports film. I like The Way Back a lot. And this is also going to sound cliche. This isn't a story about an alcoholic who is coaching a basketball team. That's the premise, right? Um, but it's not a basketball movie. It's a, it's a movie about life. It's a movie about grief, and it's a movie about trauma. And we get this underdog story. Uh, but more than that, we get the story of Ben Affleck's character attempting to come back from a very difficult experience. And as we watch the film, uh, we get to see what actually happened to him. I was joking with somebody, and I think it's true. 
if, if there weren't um, cussing in this film, I think The Way Back could actually work as a very good faith-based film. I really appreciate the depiction of uh, the priests and the individuals who are working at this Catholic school and some of the conversations that they have with Ben Affleck. He's not just trying to find stability. He's trying to find his soul. Uh, he's trying to find uh, salvation. And I think that there's just the right enough basketball element mixed in with the personal life to work. It's not a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but I, I think it's actually, I think it's really, uh, really good. And two, I I played on a very bad basketball team uh, for private school <laughs> whenever I was in high school. And some of the elements, some of the team elements reminded me of my experiences. Now, we did not have the turnaround that this team had, uh, but it's fun to watch that and to live in that. So, uh, have some cliches, but I, I think that O'Connor threads the needle pretty well here, and I, I'm happy to recommend this picture. Yeah, you know, The Way Back has been getting uh, a lot of positive buzz from from not just you, from but from a, a lot of people that I kind of just follow on Letterboxd and Twitter, so I'm kind of regretting my decision to sort of pass over it once we were unable to you know see it in the theater for for the show so i don't know maybe i should uh make my way back around to it when i when i have some time uh listeners if you've seen uh the way back definitely interested in your take on that as well we're we are probably wade gonna try to include this as a regular feature going forward until kind of movie theaters reopen around the country. Just what we're watching on streaming, whether it's a movie or television, just stuff that our listeners can check out that's, you know, new, fresh off the presses, but that maybe hasn't gotten the attention it deserves or just hasn't had its day in in a movie theater big screen just yet. So looking forward to that in the coming weeks. Yeah, and it's nice to see some movies that are being released that are uh, are films that we can recommend, and so that's exciting. And it, Kevin, I will put this out there too. Next week, we're talking about the films of David Fincher, and then two weeks from now, we're going to be talking about Wes Anderson. So I don't know how many new uh, pieces of pop culture I'll be able to examine before then because I'm going to try to go back and watch these movies, but I'm, I'm very excited about David Fincher next week. So listeners, make sure to catch up on some of his films and to tune in next week for that. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll catch you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.